Chapter 26 of the Marquis de Vilma. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. The Marquis de Vilma by George Sand. Translated by Ralph Keeler. Chapter 26. At about four o'clock, while the brightening skies permitted Payrack to make preparations for their return, by hiring another cart well provided with straw and blankets, together with oxen and a skilful teamster, so as to reach Lausan before evening, the young and beautiful Duchess Deleria, robed in moire, her arms loaded with cameos, came into the apartment of her mother-in-law at the castle of Mavaroche in Limousin, leaving her husband and Madame d'Arglade chatting with apparent friendliness in a magnificent drawing-room. Diana had an air of joyful triumph, which struck the marchioness. "'Well, what is it, my beauty?' asked the old lady. "'What has happened? Has my other son returned?' "'He will come soon,' replied the Duchess. "'You have the promise of it, and you know we feel no uneasiness on his account. His brother knows where he is, and declares we shall see him again by the end of the week. So you find me excessively gay, excessively happy. Even this little Madame d'Arglade is delightful. Dear Mamma, she is the source of all my happiness. Oh, you are jesting, little masquerader. You can't endure her. Why have you brought her here? I did not request it. No one can amuse me but you. "'And I undertake it more bravely than ever,' replied Diana, with a bewitching smile. "'And this very dark lady, whom I adore, is going to furnish me with weapons against your wretched melancholy. "'Listen, dear good mamma. at last we have got her awful secret, though not without trouble by any means. "'For three days we have been manoeuvring round her, the Duke and I, overpowering her with our mutual trust.' our surrender of ourselves to happiness, our most graceful tenderness. At last the estimable woman, who is not our dupe, and whom our aggravating mockeries drove to extremity, has given me to understand that Caroline had for an accomplice in her great fault. Oh, you know whom. She has told you. I pretended not to understand. It was a little thrust right into my heart. No, a deep thrust. I must tell the truth. But I hastened to find my dear Duke and flung it squarely in his face. Is it true, you dreadful man, that you have been in love with Mademoiselle de Saint-Genot? The Duke sprang like a cat. No, like a leopard whose paw had been trodden on. There, I was sure of it, said he, roaring. It is our good Leone who has invented that and then he began to talk of killing her. So I had to quiet him and tell him I didn't believe it, which wasn't quite true. I did believe it a little bit. And this son of yours, who isn't dull, he perceived that, and he flung himself at my feet and he swore. Oh, but he did swear by all that I believe and love, by the true God and then by you, that it was just an infamous lie. And now I am as sure of this, as I am that I came into the world for nothing else but just to love his grace the Duke. 
The Duchess had a childish lisp, as natural as Madame d'Arglade's was affected, and she united with this a tone of resolute sincerity that made her perfectly charming. The Marchioness had no time to wonder over what she heard, for the Duke came in as triumphant as his wife. There, cried he, God be praised, you will never see that viper again. She has called for her carriage, she is going off furious, but with no poison in her fangs. I can answer for that, mother, my poor mother, how you have been deceived. I can appreciate your suffering, and you wouldn't say a word, not even to me, who could in a breath, but I have confessed her this odious woman, who would have brought despair into my household. If Diana were not an angel from heaven, against whom the powers of darkness will never prevail. Well, mother, be a little vexed with us all. It will do you good. Madame d'Arglade saw, did she not, with her own two eyes, saw Mademoiselle de Saint-Genot leaning on my arm and crossing the lawn of Saval at daybreak. She saw me speak to her affectionately and shake hands with her. Well, she didn't see the whole, for I kissed her hands one after the other. And what she did not overhear, I'm going to tell you, for I remember as well as if it happened yesterday. I was excited enough for that, I said to her. My brother has been at the point of death tonight, and you have saved him. Pity him. Still keep him under your care. Help me to hide his illness from our mother, and thanks to you he will not die. That is what I said. I swear it before heaven, and this is what had taken place. The Duke recounted the whole, and going into the matter more thoroughly still, even confessed his false notions about Caroline and his fruitless manoeuvring, which he had not even perceived. He described the outburst of jealousy against him on the part of the Marquis, their disagreement for one hour, their passionate reconciliation, the confession of the one, the solemn oaths of the other, the discovery he made at that moment of his brother's alarming condition, his own imprudence in leaving him, thinking him asleep and comfortable, the broken window pane, the cries Caroline overheard, and Caroline herself rushing to his aid, reviving the sick man, staying beside him, devoting herself from that time onward to caring for him, amusing him and aiding him in his work. And all this, added the Duke, with a devotedness, a frankness, a forgetfulness of self, unequalled in all my experience. This Caroline, you see, is a woman of rare worth, and I have sought in vain for a person who would suit my brother better in point of age, character, modesty, or congenial taste. I do not find one anywhere. You know I have desired to have him make a more brilliant match. Well, now that he is safe from serious embarrassment, thanks to this angel here, who has restored us all to freedom and dignity, now that I have seen the persistence and strength of my brother's love, for a person who is, more than all the others, the sincere friend he needs, and lastly, now that Diana understands all this better than I, and exhorts me to believe in love matches, I have, dear mother, only one thing to say, which is that we must find Caroline again, and you must cheerfully give her your blessing 
as the best friend you ever had, except my wife and the best daughter you can wish beside her. Oh, my children, cried the Marchioness, you make me so happy. I have hardly lived since this calumny. Urbane's grief, the absence of this child who was dear to me, the fear of setting at variance two brothers so perfectly united. If I acknowledge what I suppose to be true, what I am so glad find false, we must hasten after the Marquis, after Caroline. But where, for heaven's sake? You know where your brother is, but he... Does he know where she is? No, he set out without knowing, replied the Duchess. But Madame Hodebert knows. Write her, dear mother. Tell her the truth and she will tell Caroline. Yes, yes, I am going to write, said the Marchioness. But how can I let poor Urbain know at once? I will take charge of that, said the Duke. I would go myself if the Duchess could go with me. But to leave her for three days, on my word, it is too soon. Fie, cried the Duchess. As soon as the honeymoon is over, do you mean to be running off without me in that way? Light-hearted and light-footed too. Ah, how mistaken you are, you charming man. I shall keep you in order with all your inconstancy. And pray, how will you do it then? asked the Duke, looking at her fondly. By loving you always more and more. We shall see whether you grow weary of it. While the Duke was caressing the golden hair of his wife, the Marchioness was writing to Camille with a youthful sprightliness, which was certainly remarkable. Here, my children, said she, is this right? The Duchess read, My dear Madame Hodebert, bring Caroline back to us and let me embrace you both. She has been the victim of a horrible slander. I know all. I weep for having believed in the fall of an angel. May she forgive me. Let her come back. Let her be my daughter always and never leave me again. There are two of us who cannot live without her. That is delightful. It is kind and just like you, said the Duchess, sealing up the note, and the Duke rang while his mother was writing the address. The message being dispatched, she said to them, Why can't you both go after the Marquis? Is he so very far off? Twelve hours by post at the very most, replied the Duke. And I cannot know where he is. I ought not to tell you, but I am convinced he will now have no more secrets from you. Happiness induces confidence. My son, returned the Marchioness, you alarm me seriously. Perhaps your brother is here sick, and you are hiding it from me as you did at Saval. He is worse even. You make me believe he is away because he isn't able to be up. No, no, cried Diana, laughing. He is not here. He is not sick. He is abroad. He is travelling. He is sad, perhaps. But he is going to be happy now. And he did not start without some hope of mollifying you. The Duke solemnly assured his mother that his wife was telling the truth. Well, my children, resumed the Marchioness, still uneasy. I wish I could know you were with him. How shall I say it? He has never been ill, but that I have suspected it, or at least felt a peculiar uneasiness. I was conscious of this at Saval, exactly at the period when he was so ill without my knowledge. I see that what you describe coincides with a fearful night which I passed then. Well, today, this morning, I was alone, and I had what I may call a waking dream. 
I saw the Marquis pale, wrapped in something white, a shroud perhaps, and I heard in my ear his voice, his own voice saying, Mother. Heavens, what fancies you torment yourself with, said the Duke. I don't torment myself willingly, and I let my presentiments comfort me, for I want to tell you the whole. For an hour past I have known that my son is well, but he has been in danger today. He has suffered, or it may have been an accident. Remember now the day and the hour. There you must go, said the Duchess to her husband. I don't believe a word of all this, but we must reassure your mother. You shall go with him, said the Marchioness. I don't want my gloomy notions, which after all are perhaps morbid and nothing else, to give you the first annoyance of your married life. And leave you alone with these ideas? They will all vanish as soon as I see you going after him. The Marchioness insisted. The Duchess ordered a light trunk, and two hours afterwards she was travelling by post with her husband through Tulle and Orillac, on the way to Le Pew. The Duchess knew the secret of her brother-in-law. She was ignorant of the mother's name, but aware of the existence of the child. The Marquis had authorised the Duke to have no secrets from his wife. At six in the morning they reached Polignac. The first face which attracted Diana's notice was that of Didier. She was impressed, as Caroline had been, with a sudden impulse of tenderness towards this dear little creature, who captivated all hearts. While she was looking at him and petting him, the Duke inquired for the pretended Monsieur Bernier. My dear, said he to his wife, coming back, my mother was right. Some accident has happened to my brother. He went away yesterday morning for a few hours' ramble over the mountain, but has not returned yet. The people here are uneasy about him. Do they know where he went? Yes, it is beyond Le Pew. The post will carry us so far, and I can leave you there. I shall take a horse and a guide, for there is no road passable for carriages. We will take two horses, said the Duchess. I'm not tired a bit. Let us start. An hour after the intrepid Diana, lighter than a bird, was galloping up the slope of the Gagenet and laughing at her husband's anxiety about her. At nine o'clock in the morning they were swiftly passing through Lantriac, to the great wonderment of the townspeople. Alighting soon at the pay-rack Lanyon domicile, to the equally great disgust of the village innkeeper. The family were at a table in the little workshop. The wanderers had returned the night before, after some slight detention, but without accident. The Marquis, weary but not sick, had accepted the hospitality of Peyrac's son, who lived nearby. Caroline had slept delightfully in her little room. She was helping Justine to wait upon the men of the house that is, the Marquis and the two pay-racks. Radiant with happiness, she went back and forth, now waiting on the rest, and now seating herself opposite Monsieur de Villemer, who let her have her own way, watching her with delight, as if to say, I permit this now, but how I shall repay all these attentions by and by. What an outburst of joy and surprise filled Peyrac's house at the appearance of the travellers, the two brothers gave each other a long hugging, 
Diana embraced Caroline, calling her sister. They spent an hour talking over everything by snatches, extravagantly, without comprehending one another, without feeling sure they were not all dreaming. The Duke was almost famished, and found Justine's dishes excellent, for she prepared another plentiful breakfast, while Caroline assisted her, laughing and weeping at the same time. Diana was in a wildly venturesome mood, and wanted to undertake seasoning the dishes, to her husband's great dismay. At last they seriously resumed their respective explanations and recitals. The Marquis began by sending off a courier to Le Pew, with a letter for his mother, whose anxiety and strange presentiments they had mentioned the first thing. They shed no tears on quitting the payracks, for these good people had promised to come to the wedding. The next day they had reached Mauveroche again, with Didier, whom the Marquis placed in his mother's lap. She had been prepared for this by her son's letter. She loaded the child with caresses, and restoring him to Caroline's arms, she said, My daughter, you accept, then, the task of making us all happy. Take my blessing a thousand times over, and if you would keep me here a long while, never leave me again. I have done you much harm, my poor angel, but God has not allowed it to last long, for I should have died from it sooner than you. The Marquis and his wife passed the rest of the bright season at Mauveroche, and a few autumnal days at Saval. This place was very dear to them, and in spite of the pleasure of meeting their relatives again in Paris, it was not without an effort that they tore themselves away from a nook consecrated by such memories. The marriage of the Marquis astounded no one. Some approved, others disdainfully predicted that he would repent this eccentricity, that he would be forsaken by all reasonable people, that his life was a ruin, a failure. The Marchioness came near suffering a little from these remarks. Madame d'Arglade pursued Diana, Caroline and their husbands with her hatred, but everything fell before the revolution of February, and people had to think of other matters. The Marchioness was terribly frightened, and thought it expedient to seek refuge at Saval, where she was happy in spite of herself. The Marquis, just as his anonymous book was about to appear, postponed its publication to a more quiet period. He was unwilling to strike the sufferers of the day. Blessed with love and family joys, he is not impatient for glory. The old Marchioness is now no more. Feeble in body and far too active in mind, her days have been numbered. She passed away in the midst of her children and grandchildren, blessing them all without knowing she was leaving them. Conscious of bodily infirmities, but preserving her intellectual force and natural kindliness to the last, and laying plans as most invalids do for the next year. The Duke is growing quite fleshy in his prosperity, but is still good-humoured, handsome, and active enough. He lives in great luxury, but without extravagance, referring everything to his wife, who governs him and keeps him on his good behaviour. With rare tact and admirable judgment, notwithstanding the indulgent spoiling of her fondness for him. We would not assert that he has never thought of deceiving her, but she has contrived to counteract his fancies 
without letting him suspect it, and her triumph, which still endures, proves once more that there are sometimes wit and power enough in the brain of a girl of sixteen to settle the destiny, and that in the best possible way of a professed profligate. The Duke, still wonderfully good-natured and somewhat weak, finds more delight than one would think in giving over his skilfully planned treacheries toward the fair sex, and in going to sleep without further remorse on the pillow of comfortable propriety. The Marquis and the new Marchioness de Vilmer now pass eight months of the year at Saval, always occupied, we cannot say with one another, because they are so united that they think together and answer each other before the question is asked. But with the education of their children, who are all sprightly and intelligent, Monsieur de G. Blanc is dead. Madame de G. Blanc has been forgotten. Didier is formally recognised by the Marquis as one of his children. Caroline no longer remembers that she is not his mother. Madame Hodebert is established at Saval. All her children are brought up under the united care of the Marquis and Caroline. The sons of the Duke, petted more, are not so intelligent or so strong, but they are amiable and full of precocious graces. The Duke is an excellent father, and is astonished, though quite needlessly, to find that his children are already so large. The pay racks have been loaded with gifts. Last year, Urbane and Caroline went back to visit them, and this time they climbed, under a fine sunrise, the silvery peak of Mazenk. They also wanted to see once more the poor cabin, where, in spite of the Marquis and his liberality, nothing is changed for the better. But the father has bought land and thinks himself wealthy. Caroline seated herself with pleasure by the miserable hearth, where she had seen at her feet for the first time the man with whom she would have willingly shared a hut in the savannes, and forgetfulness of the whole world. The End End of chapter 26 End of the Marquis de Vilma by George Sand Translated by Ralph Keeler